Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. During today's program, we'll give away a four pack of tickets to the singing Christmas tree. That will be in the five o'clock hour. So heads up for that. We're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Kello. He's the author of Walk with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. Dr. Kello became chaplain of Wheaton College in 1989. He retired from that position after serving for 25 years. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, and prior to his chaplaincy at Wheaton, he spent 15 years in parish ministry. He and his wife uh, uh, have two uh, grandchildren, and he's going to join us to talk about how to walk with Jesus on campus. We're also going to talk with um, John Carlo Canaparo, who's a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, about California's effort to uh, force the president to um, reveal his tax returns for four years in order to appear on the ballot in the primary election in that state. So we'll get into that later in the program as well. Taking a look at some of the day's uh, headlines, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Fox News Sean Hannity agreed on only one thing in a wide-ranging exclusive energy, uh, interview rather on Hannity on Wednesday night. They agreed they disagree on almost everything. I'm never going to agree with you. You drive me crazy, Hannity told his guest, de Blasio. <laughs> Uh, A 2020 presidential candidate, um, sort of an interesting way to uh, begin a conversation. He said he supports border security, but not walls, insisting there is no invasion. Hannity asked de Blasio why he favors um, offering tax-funded health care to illegal immigrants. They debated New York City's gun control laws. They sparred over the Green New Deal and its potential impact on the coal, oil, and natural gas industries and construction in New York City. Hannity confronted de Blasio over his vow to tax the expletive out of the wealthy to address the income inequality. The back and forth went on. The mayor wants a wealthy Americans to pay 70% of their income in taxes. They joked about de Blasio's support of meatless Mondays in the Big Apple schools where students would be given a meatless lunch one day per week. President Trump on Wednesday visited El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio to bring comfort to the communities rocked by the back-to-back shootings uh, last weekend that left a total of 31 people dead. He was um, also greeted by protesters in both states who demanded tougher anti-gun laws and blamed him for contributing to a culture of violence in America with his rhetoric. Still, the president and his aides insisted he was welcomed warmly during his hospital visits and that shooting victims were happy to see him. Trump's hospital visit were not without controversy. He accused Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown and Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley of misrepresenting what took place inside the hospital. The president didn't specifically say what he believed was misrepresented, but he tweeted that Brown and Whaley's description in a news conference afterwards of his visit to meet hospital staff and victims of last weekend's shootings was a fraud that bore no resemblance to what took place with those incredible people. While Trump attempted to be a consular in, uh, in uh, consoler rather in chief, 2020 Democratic presidential candidates Joe Biden, Beta O'Rourke, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, and others were all equating him with white supremacy, another sign that an urge uh, for calm in the days following this weekend's mass shooting may be falling on deaf ears. 
And the president uh, had a phone conversation on Tuesday with Lane LaPierre, chief executive of the National Rifle Association, just days after the two mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton. The president didn't publicly acknowledge the phone call, and it was unclear who initiated that conversation. But the White, the Washington Post, rather, citing unnamed sources, reported that LaPierre told the president that endorsing tougher background checks, which the president has a championed, which um, uh, has uh, done in private since February of 2018, since the massacre in Parkland, Florida, that left 17 dead, would not be popular with his voting base. The NRA did not immediately respond to an email seeking further comment. And Puerto Rico is bracing for renewed demonstrations after Justice Secretary Wanda Vasquez was sworn in as the island's new governor Wednesday, hours after its Supreme Court ruled that last week's inauguration of Uh, Pedro Pierluisius, as governor, was against the law and overturned that. Well, the unpopular Vasquez had thousands of protesters demand the resignation of former Governor Ricardo Rossello. Many Puerto Ricans see her as an extension of Rossello. Vasquez sought to calm the anger in a television statement late uh, Wednesday night, saying she feels the pain Puerto Ricans have experienced in recent weeks and vowing to unify the island. We'll see how long that lasts. And U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, said on Wednesday that its officers had raided seven food processing plants in Mississippi and detained approximately 680 removable aliens in what a federal prosecutor described as the largest single-state immigration enforcement operation in our nation's history. Nearly 600 ICE agents swarmed the plants in Bay Spring, Carthage, Canton, Monta, uh, Morton, uh, and others surrounding the perimeters to keep workers from fleeing. The execution of federal search warrants today was simply about enforcing the rule of law in our state and throughout the great country, U.S. Attorney Mike Hurst said in a statement of those events. On this day in history, 1968, the Republican National Convention in Miami Beach nominates Richard Nixon for president on the first ballot. On this day in history in 1974, President Richard Nixon, facing damaging new revelations in the Watergate scandal, announces he will resign the following day. And on this day in history, 2003, the Boston Roman Catholic Archdiocese offers $55 million to settle more than 500 lawsuits stemming from alleged sex abuse by priests. The Archdiocese would later settle for $85 million. And on this day in 2008, former U.S. Senator and Democratic Vice Presidential nominee John Edwards of North Carolina admits to an affair with a presidential campaign staffer, ending his presidential aspirations. Well, this week marks the one-year anniversary of the horrific uh, Parkland school shooting. There's no evidence that all mentally ill people constitute a high-risk population with respect to interpersonal violence, including firearm-related violence. But the most significant link between mental illness and firearm-related violence is suicide, which amounts to um, almost two-thirds of all annual firearm-related deaths. Well, in this effort to address the fallout from the most recent series of shootings, there's been a lot of discussion about how we can respond, perhaps reduce the number of events. Uh, tragedy sparked an intense national debate at that time, one year ago, over how best to protect our children from school shootings. Some have pushed for more restrictions on the constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. Among them are the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, desperate to find some way to potentially reduce the violence and protect students and teachers. These groups released a new set of um, proposals on Monday that they say can prevent mass shooting incidents and help end gun violence in American schools.
Unfortunately, the proposals missed the mark by neglecting to focus on some of the real problems, including, among other things, the role of mental illness in certain types of firearm-related violence. Well, how does serious mental illness factor in, and what steps can government take to mitigate the role of untreated mental illness in providing and producing uh, 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 violent threats? Well, these questions merit deliberate, thoughtful examination, not reflexive calls for broad gun control without a full range of solutions. And for that reason, uh, there's a legal memorandum recently published titled Mental Illness, Firearms and Violence as part of a series of papers by John Malcolm exploring some of these deeper issues. It's a paper worth reading. And um, I would encourage you to do just that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Stephen Kello, author of Walk with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. The book is published by Moody. Well, Oregon is one of 17 states that already has a red flag law. You've been hearing a lot about that. The president mentioned it, and uh, they're talking about it in the Senate. The law allows family members, household members, or law enforcement to petition the courts to temporarily remove guns from someone if they think they're a danger to themselves or to others. Oregon's red flag law went into effect back in 2018, and it advocates, uh, advocates rather, uh, that individuals who have the opportunity to observe uh, the behavior or the condition of another um, can, in fact, do something to try to wrest the guns that they may possess from them. Oregon's red flag law uh, is um, in place, and those who are in favor of it say it's an effective tool for reducing gun violence and preventing suicides. Well, as we continue to see mass shootings and talk about ways to prevent them, there's another number of uh, people um, uh, don't pay as much attention to that's 60 percent of deaths by firearms are by suicide and so we hear about these mass shootings and it makes a ton of media splash and of course it's tragic every single one of these deaths and what we don't hear about is the number of suicides that are happening simultaneously before during and after these uh, larger events david westbrook who's the chief operating officer at lines for life a nonprofit dedicated to preventing substance abuse and suicide says this is an opportune moment to consider that as well. In 2018, the threat of suicide and uh, threat of physical force were the top two reasons someone applied for an extreme risk protection order under Oregon's red flag law. Now, Westbrook says getting guns out of the hands of people thinking about committing suicide is key to this law, and is, uh, this law is a way to do that. This is definitely a help. It's one of the tools that we uh, will need around uh, lethal means, which is really the way that um, we think about it and talk about it in suicide prevention. Uh, Westbrook said that we're not talking about gun control or taking away guns. We're talking about lethal means and protecting people from lethal means when they're having uh, thoughts of suicide or uh, the misuse of firearms uh, in other ways. Well, the law doesn't take away any uh, someone's gun permanently. The orders are temporary. They prevent the person from buying additional guns for a year. In 2018, there were 74 petitions for extreme risk protection orders. Out of those, 62 were approved by a judge and 12 were denied. 
And again, these are temporary. From January through June of this year, 43 petitions have been filed. Out of those, 30 have been granted, 13 denied. 16 other states, including the state of Washington, also have these red flag laws. Four more states are considering adopting them as well. Um, the initial state to do this was Connecticut, and they've shown uh, through some pretty good data that it can be effective. It's still pretty new here in Oregon, but there's no reason to expect that it doesn't happen just like it happened in Connecticut. Westbrook says uh, to bring down suicide rates and to prevent people from committing acts of violence, this is a, a, an excellent tool. The law doesn't require the judicial department to track how many weapons were actually seized as a result of the order. But if you or someone you know is struggling and needs help, there's always someone to talk to. The Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day. And there are other resources in our community as well for you to consider. Well, two Hillsborough women are grateful tonight for Oregon's red flag law, according to KGW.com. Uh, the law allows the state to take away someone's guns in certain circumstances. And these two women, one a mother, one a sister or an aunt, found it necessary in this case. Well, the women told KGW that their son and brother was quite artistic, sensitive, and funny before turning to drugs. He became very suspicious, nervous, paranoid, terrified. Uh, Both women want to remain anonymous. Well, the women said the 29-year-old man was a gun owner who carried his gun everywhere, including on bus on busy max uh, trains. He thought everyone was an operative of the FBI and the CIA, according to his family. And he would say that if the operatives uh, ever tried to catch him, they'd get something coming to them. They wouldn't expect. Well, the mother and sister were deathly afraid of what could happen. Well, that's when they learned about Oregon's red flag law. The law allows family and police to ask a circuit court to take away weapons and concealed uh, weapons, Um, carry uh, permits from people who uh, they say pose a risk to themselves or someone else. Well, the women say they went to court twice over the course of two weeks until a judge decided to confiscate the gun. Said uh, one of the pair, it was utter relief. We knew he was angry. Well, 17 states, as I mentioned, including the District of Columbia, have passed some form of red flag law. Four more states are considering Uh, The same. And between January of uh, 2018 and June of 2019, there have been 117 petitions uh, here in the state of uh, of Oregon. These red flags uh, laws most uh, certainly save lives, says one of the women. The Hillsborough mother and sister know the importance of the legislation. They have advice for anyone who's thinking about taking advantage of it and to save loved ones or others. Uh, says one of the pair, I think you need to be brave and not worry if that person is going to be angry uh, because there's so much at stake. So these are uh, laws that are available in both the state of Oregon and Washington uh, so that if you are concerned, you have the opportunity for a judge, a disinterested party, if you will, to consider your concern and whether or not it merits moving forward with temporarily removing uh, the firearm from the individual about which you have expressed concern. Well, Universal's um, The Hunt isn't even out yet, but many are uh, taking to Twitter to react to the film's trailer, calling it beyond sick and disturbing. Well, The Hunt satirizes killing deplorables, a phrase that 
uh, Hillary Clinton coined back in the 2016 presidential election. It's being slammed online, called Beyond Sick and Disturbing, even though it's not clear which group emerges as the victor. Well, the hunt, which initially was going to be titled Red State versus Blue State, is billed as a satire that follows wealthy thrill seekers as they take a private jet to a five-star resort where they embark on a deeply rewarding expedition that involves hunting down and killing deplorables. Now, deplorables are defined as conservatives who support Donald Trump. Well, the hunt is billed as a satire that follows wealthy thrill seekers taking this private trip. Universal is releasing the uh, movie about hunting down people called The Hunt, and they pull the ads, but they haven't stopped its release. Absolutely irresponsible movie and um, uh, uh, these people who are observing the movie say it's uh, irresponsible and it fosters hate and killing of people who don't believe the same as the hunters. Hollywood should be ashamed. Um, they are suggesting. Well, another shared. I just read a report on the movie The Hunt that comes out soon. This is why I can't pick a side. A movie about rounding up a group of deplorables and hunting them is okay. Put all the gun laws on the books, but we're entertained by a movie about killing Trump supporters. Really? At Universal Picks, another says, you greenlit a movie like this in this era of political violence and mass murder. I will no longer pay to watch your movies if you release this movie, another tweeted. Well, someone else shared, the hunt is the most disgusting and terrifying thing I have ever heard. You yell about gun control and then release a movie about shooting people who are against your views. Open up your eyes, people. God help us all. Well, the idea and trailer for the movie is disturbing enough. The fact it was done by the same people responsible for the Purge movies speaks of how much Hollywood believes and desires our nation to devolve into civil war, chaos, and a place where only one side survives, another user tweeted. Universal is releasing a movie next month called The Hunt that depicts Trump supporters being hunted down like animals. That is beyond sick, says yet another. Well, Universal Pictures uh, told media on Wednesday that out of sensitivity to the attention on the country's recent shooting tragedies, Universal Pictures and the filmmakers of The Hunt have temporarily paused its marketing campaign and are reviewing materials as we move forward. I mean, this is just breathtaking to me. The fact that there was just an, a recent event without regard to events that have already taken place, this being the anniversary week of Parkland. Uh, The Hunt is scheduled to hit theaters in September, but honchos are reportedly considering a strategy with the uh, tragic mass shooting of late. The Hunt stars Betty Gilpin, Ike um, Barinholtz, and Hilary Swank, and is scheduled to be released on the 27th of September. Perhaps they're waiting for the Fuhrer to die down from the most recent spate of uh, these mass killings and hope people will just sort of get over it and uh, might enjoy watching a satirized, in quotes, version of Um, the same. 30 minutes after four o'clock is our time. We're going to take a break. When we return, we'll talk with Stephen Kello. His book is titled Walk with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, time at university is almost always a pivotal moment, a pivoting point for best or for worst. Some people go into college strong in their faith, but walk away burnt out and disillusioned. Others come in with spiritual doubts and apathy toward Christ and walk away with passionate um, desire to follow Christ and become leaders. So what makes the difference? 
Well, in Walking with Jesus on Campus, Chaplain Stephen Kello, he explores 10 critical truths that he, uh, he's seen make the difference for students, from dealing with doubt to practicing the Sabbath to living with humility. He explores the habits that typically make or break a student's spiritual life. Whether you're heading off to college, ministering to college students, or you're a parent of a college-aged kid, this book will help you better understand how to tackle what lies ahead. Dr. Stephen Kello uh, he is an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church USA. He served at, as Wheaton College's chaplain for 25 years, from 1989 to 2014. He and his wife, Linda, they live in the greater Chicago area. They focus on local church ministry, and he joins us today to talk about walking with Jesus on campus. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you, Georgine. Well, you have uh, been involved in campus ministry for many years. For listeners who maybe have um, been away from campus for many years or are unfamiliar with some of the challenges, can you paint a picture for us of the challenges that the modern student faces when they make their way to college or university, either starting out as a believer or someone who just has uh, a tendency towards seeking uh, truth? What are some of the challenges to faith? A Harvard uh, professor by the name of Sharon Parks wrote a book called The Critical Years, and I can vouch for that after observing uh, college students, 18 to 22-year-olds, living with them, counseling them, serving as a chaplain, a pastor, counselor, and caring for students. And uh, the student life, making that transition from home life with family and friends, maybe church along with that, and moving out into the college or university community uh, can be jarring and is certainly um, life, a life-changing experience and a big switch that students are making. It's a privilege uh, to be a chaplain, a pastoral counselor with students uh, during those critical years that they're making that transition from, from being very uh, dependent in, in home life for the most part to launching out on their own and finding their own way, really finding their own identity. Uh, in my book, Walking with Jesus on Campus, I am specifically addressing a, uh, a Christian uh, person, a Christ follower, someone with a, a level of interest in, in Christian faith. But uh, that may be at one of many different levels, levels of maturity. At uh, Wheaton College, where I served for 25 years, the, there was a profession. There is a profession of faith that's required for entrance. But actually, I'm writing the book not just for students who have made a profession of faith and are at a Christian college or university, but for Christian students, those who would call themselves Christ followers, who may be at any any uh, kind of college or university, whether it be a private uh, church-related school, or a public uh, uh, university. So there are principles, there are practices that I've, I've observed, and I wanted to put into print some of those principles and practices to help students not just to survive their college uh, experience in that huge transition, but so that students might thrive uh, during those years and make the transition well and find some uh, resources for their faith, resources for their progress as individuals and as, uh, as they seek to find a, a, an identity of their own. 
And that's uh, that's certainly a challenge. There are so many options available. There's not the oversight of a parent. Um, there's the pressure of doing well academically, all things that could um, rob a student of the opportunity to continue to grow in their faith and develop. And your book is, is certainly uh, designed to help them think through some of the things that are important to take with them uh, when they make their way to college. You begin in the first chapter titled The Most Significant Spiritual Challenge in College, uh, sort of um, giving us giving the reader an idea of what those challenges will be to anticipate uh, preparing to make good decisions in the midst of that challenge. What are these the most significant spiritual challenges in college? Um, you've mentioned some, but what are some of the the things that are are significant? And how do you build a biblical foundation in anticipation of surviving one's faith uh, in those uh, in the midst of those challenges? The very first chapter, as you uh, mentioned, Georgine, the very first chapter is entitled "The Most Significant Spiritual Challenge in College." And I intend for that to be kind of a surprise. Uh, I uh, provide what I think is a surprise answer to that question, because that was a question that I was asked for years before I really came to appreciate um, the best answer to the question, the most profound answer to that question. What is the the most significant spiritual challenge in college? And I think that that the answer is that students, more than anything else, need to understand and to appreciate that they're loved by God. Now, that sounds so simple and so basic, but it's so important and so true, especially for students who identify as Christ followers, who want to grow in their faith, just to embrace that uh, simple yet profound um, truth that God loves them. And there's, there's a saying that, that goes like this. God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. Yes. And I think that when we come to appreciate that dimension of the Christian life, where it's not a work-oriented faith, that we're, where we're trying to please God or to make ourselves holy, but to relax and to rely on God himself, and the goodness, the grace that he provides for us. I think that's the first step in realizing um, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a new and maybe a foreign land. As we're uh, making our way in that college experience, the, the thing that I've seen students struggle with maybe most is that whole idea of performance. And and college is all about grades, even in athletics. It's a position on the team or in music. It's a position in the orchestra or the band. We're graded. We're evaluated uh, continually as, as students. And so weakness shows up, and we realize that maybe uh, we're not going to get straight A's in college as we did in high school. But what I found for Christian students to to dig deeply into the spiritual resources that they have in the scriptures and to find that actually weakness is not such a bad thing mm-hmm. because, as Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. And it's, it's when we're weak that we're strong. 
as the Apostle uh, Paul said. So we find that there is uh, a strength that comes in our relationship with Jesus. And so through those those, uh, challenges of performance and a drivenness toward perfectionism, we can learn a contentment. And here, again, is a spiritual principle that we can draw upon. And that is to find the secret of being content, even in the midst of all of the busyness that's around us. And what one uh, psychiatrist um, uh, developed as a, as a concept, calling it the tyranny of the should. Hmm. And in that world of, of performance and perfectionism and, and tr- the tyranny of the should, we can relax. And we can find that there is uh, there's a secret of learning contentment, and that contentment comes in dependence upon a loving heavenly Father, embracing that love that God has for us. In another of your chapters, you write about the dual dilemmas of doubt and depression. There is a significant amount of pressure uh, to perform that you've already uh, mentioned, uh, measuring up and so on. Um, talk about this uh, dueling dilemma of doubt and depression and how uh, a student might respond to that pressure in a way that will help them to grow in their faith and not be overcome and overwhelmed by it. I think these are extremely common uh, experiences for college students, doubt and depression. And I put them together in a chapter in the book because I see them uh, simultaneously uh, existing in students' lives. As I sit with students in my office, as we talk and we dig deeply into how are things going, what is happening in your life, what are your feelings, um, what are your stresses, and I find that at, at the core of much of the, the trouble that students would identify in their own lives is, is a doubt. And, and that's a dilemma. And, and then there's the, often, very often, a, a psychological and sometimes spiritual uh, depression that accompanies that doubt. And when I sit with students, I, I often refer them to Psalm 13. And here's a psalm that uh, the, the psalmist David, where he expresses his uh, personal feelings of the anxiety of of doubt and the pain of depression. That's really, it's because of the association with Psalm 13 that I've linked these two concepts together. But I find that there are answers for students. It may not come quickly and simply, but there is biblical hope. It's more than wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. And what I love about Psalm 13 is the, the psalmist is so honest about his struggle, and yet David did not struggle as someone who had no hope. The last uh, verses of that psalm, uh, the psalmist says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. So even through the anxiety of doubt and the pain of depression, as we're pointed to spiritual resources and specifically the scriptures and to other wise and spiritual uh, counselors, we can be encouraged 
in our faith and to have a solid biblical hope that gives us the strength to take one step and put one foot in front of the next. One foot in front of the next. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Stephen Kello. Walk with Jesus on campus. The book will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Stephen Kello. He is the author of Walking with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. Um, Dr. Kelo became chaplain of Wheaton College in 1989, retired from that position after serving for 25 years. He spent a lot of time on college campuses, talking with young people making their way through a college experience. One of the chapters um, was somewhat surprising to me because it focuses on the Sabbath, the unclaimed gift. Now, when you're in college, there's a a, a swirl of busyness and things that have to be accomplished. And yet uh, you were suggesting that one of the essentials uh, that transforms a college experience for a Christian is to take advantage of that Sabbath rest that God calls us to. It is, and I think that this is probably an unexpected Mm -hmm. uh, chapter to find in a book on spiritual formation for college students, but it's something that I came to understand quite early, maybe after a couple of years in the chaplaincy, that with all of the hurriedness and busyness uh, around me, and as students were uh, starting to identify themselves uh, as human doings instead of human beings, it was... uh, it was just uh, detrimental to their, not just their spiritual health, but their physical health, their mental health. And what I found was that students, once they came to appreciate uh, the beauty of keeping a Sabbath, they they really, they embraced it enthusiastically. And uh, it, I, it uh, became a regular practice of mine in the fall of the year to share a talk uh, uh, in one of my chapels on the uh, the practice of Sabbath and the beauty of Sabbath, and not just look at it as a restriction, and, and it is one of the, the Ten Commandments, it's the Fourth Commandment, the Fourth Commandment, so we should take it seriously, but it's for our good. The word Shabbat, the Hebrew word Shabbat, literally means to cease, to rest, or to stop. Isn't it great that God actually gives us permission to stop and to rest from all of our doing? Of course, the fourth commandment is a command to work as much as it is a command to rest. But giving us that break, that opportunity to cease, to rest, to stop, is truly a gift. And students uh, came to appreciate that. And so I would have students uh, come up to me and express their appreciation for uh, the encouragement uh, to do Sabbath and to find that that rest that they needed. Yeah, it's so counterintuitive when you're in college and university um, that this flurry of activity that never ceases seems to be the more normative. But this is a a gift. I I like the way you describe that in the book, that the Sabbath is a gift that God gives to us. Your next chapter is on sexuality and singleness, and there's probably fewer... um, uh, um, controversial issues uh, as great as this in on college campuses and in the culture in general. Uh, what do you say to students in this area 
uh, who want to walk faithfully before Christ in a highly sexualized environment of a college campus uh, and the, the challenge they face. It is. And in a book on Christian spiritual formation, you, you would expect to read about prayer and Bible study, journaling, worship, and, and other spiritual disciplines. But in a book on Christian spiritual formation for college students, it would be irresponsible, as you described the culture, uh, Georgine, it would be irresponsible to ignore issues of sexuality and singleness. Not that these issues are important only for college students, but the personal and emotional and intellectual dimensions of these issues are at an all-time high for 18 to 22-year-olds. And in this chapter on sexuality and singleness, my goal is to point students to the teaching of Jesus, which, as, as you uh, suggested, is totally countercultural. But as we point our, our gaze at Jesus, we can learn a lot from Jesus about sexuality and singleness. And it seems to me that when we hear this teaching coming from the lips of Jesus, the most loving and caring and compassionate person who ever lived, somehow it makes it make more sense to us. And somehow we're better able to embrace that teaching when we understand that Jesus himself wants what's best for his people. Mm-hmm. Your next chapter, uh, again, seems a bit countercultural in terms of the culture on campus, and it's titled Beyond Meism, Servanthood. Uh, this is a time when much of the attention is focused on the student and what they're accomplishing and the things that need to be done in order to maintain a GPA and all of that. And yet you focus their attention on a theme that's very central to Scripture but might easily be forgotten in a college experience, servanthood. It is. That's very true. And again, it is. Uh, supremely countercultural. I the the text that I, I uh, study in chapter seven on beyond meism servanthood is the parable of, of the good Samaritan, and Jesus identifies in that parable the meaning of neighbor and the radical nature of love that serves and. There's, there's a Bible scholar who pointed out that there's a false assumption in the question that that lawyer raised to Jesus when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the false assumption is that there is such a thing as a non-neighbor. What the parable teaches, the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches that there is no such person. Every human being is our neighbor created in the image of God and worthy of being loved. And so in looking at, again, the teaching of Jesus and being challenged by Jesus himself, maybe the most critical teaching of of that so well-known parable involves the scope of our call, uh, not just to help people in need. Certainly the parable teaches that. But you might say that more than anything else, Jesus is teaching us about the universal neighborhood of God. And when students, when anybody, comes to appreciate that call of God to see others, to love God first, 
uh, first and foremost, the greatest commandment, but then to love your neighbor as yourself. That teaching is all about the universal neighborhood of God. Mm -hmm. And that challenges students to go beyond self-interest. The next chapter naturally flows into the the notion of community. We're not called to be... um, idle and, and standing alone uh, and, and trying to walk out our faith alone. But you write, living in a safe place, which is a phrase, a safe space, which has become popularized. But this is a chapter on community. Someone once said that a college freshman can feel like the loneliest person on earth. And I think that's true. And I sat across from students who felt like they were the loneliest people on earth. But in the college community, Students, as they reach out to others, can find in friendship a safe place, whether that might be in a Bible study group or a prayer group. It could be in a group of like-minded students in a particular major or a particular athletic team or music organization to find friends. And, and that's, that's that safe place, that, that small community. That safe place doesn't have to be a large community. It can be a a very small group. When I, um, at the end of every year, as students were about to graduate or move on to the next year of college and their summer vacation, uh, I would uh, ask, I would have exit interviews with graduating seniors. And I'd ask them, what are some of the most positive influences on your spiritual life during your college years. And the most cited response was friends. Now, of course, they loved their professors. They learned a lot in the classroom. They were glad to achieve grades and to graduate. But they pointed to friendship, personal friendship, as being key to their survival in college. Um, Why was that? They would say, well, my friends, they challenged me. They love me. They empathize with me. They encourage me. And this is that safe place that's established in one-to-one friendship or in small groups or in larger organizations where you can find a safe place where people know you and they embrace you and accept you. Well, we're out of time, so we won't have an opportunity to uh, talk about the final two, Longing for God and Being Apprenticed um, to to Jesus. But the book is Walking with Jesus on Campus, How to Care for Your Soul During College. It's published by Moody. I would highly recommend it. And Dr. Uh, Kello, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me on your program. You're so welcome. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. During this hour, we're going to talk with John Carlo Canaparo. He's a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about California's effort by law to require President Trump to provide four years of his tax returns in order to appear on the California ballot in the primary election. The argument with a lawsuit that's been filed is that this is unconstitutional. We'll talk with uh, John Carlo about that later this hour. Also, we're going to give away, in fact, we'll do it right now. We're going to give away a four-pack of tickets to the Singing Christmas Tree. It's for Friday, November 22nd. 
Yeah, you got the, the date right. Friday, November 22nd, 7.30 p.m., of course, at the Keller Auditorium. Portland Singing Christmas Tree will feature 26 new songs. Miss America 2002, Katie Harmon. Timothy Greenwich is featured. 300 Voice Choir, Cinematic Nativity, The Jefferson Dancers, and I might sing a song or two. We would love to have you join us on the Friday, November 22nd uh, performance of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. We'd love to give away this four-pack of tickets to caller number five, and the number to call 800-845-2162, 800-845-2162. Portland's uh, Christmas tradition is back for two weekends only, starting November 22nd. We'd love for you to join us. Again, that number, 800-845-2162, caller number five. And I should mention, this is also the last week to save $5 on advanced purchase tickets. So if you're looking to buy a quantity of tickets, you might want to do that this weekend and enjoy a $5 discount off each ticket. So that's um, this week only. Well, Republicans are going to war with Twitter after the platform froze the Mitch McConnell re-election account this week because the campaign posted a video of threats that were directed at the Senate majority leader, just as President Trump is planning a separate crackdown on left-wing social media bias. Well, the National Republican Senatorial Committee on Thursday said it won't spend money on Twitter until the situation is adequately addressed. A top official with the Republican National Committee also said the RNC and the Trump campaign wouldn't spend money on Twitter until they address this disgusting bias. Meanwhile, the White House for weeks, they've been hinting at possible action in relation to how social media outlets treat conservatives. A White House official said that the administration is exploring all policy solutions. They've uh, circulated drafts of a possible executive order from the president following a summit last month where he met with conservative social media influencers, according to Politico. Well, if the um, Internet is going to be presented as the egalitarian platform and most of Twitter is liberal cesspool of venom, I'm quoting from a White House official speaking to uh, uh, rather told the outlet, then at least the president wants some fairness in the system. It is unclear what the order will entail or how it would aim to curb social media bias, but it reportedly deals with other issues as well. Well, the latest example of a conservative outrage at social media, Twitter froze the McConnell campaign's Team Mitch account this week after the campaign po- um, posted videos of protesters outside McConnell's home, which included violent threats against the Kentucky senator. Now, the episode prompted the McConnell campaign to slam Twitter for political bias. Now, by the way, the protesters also posted images of themselves po- uh, protesting outside of the uh, senator's home and uh, violent threats to um, have him shot in the face. But those were um, allowed to remain up while Mitch McConnell's um, uh, account showing what the protesters were doing outside his home was taken down. Well, the episode prompted the McConnell campaign to slam Twitter for pol- political bias, saying the social media platform had effectively blamed the victim. Meanwhile, Republicans noted Democratic Representative Joaquin Castro remains active on Twitter, even after he posted the names of San Antonio residents uh, who donated to Trump. Now, these were... Um, Uh, businesses. And it wasn't just that they were posted, but he associated uh, the fact that they had uh, contributed to the Trump campaign at some point over the last three years, uh, that they were somehow linked to the violent um, uh, shooting incidents that took place over the weekend. Twitter locked our account, said McConnell, for posting the video of real world violent threats made against Mitch McConnell. His campaign manager, Kevin Golden, said at the time in a statement, uh, this is the problem with the speech police in America today. Well, Golden said that the campaign appealed the suspension and Twitter upheld it, saying Team Mitch 
um, will remain suspended until they take down the video. Well, in addition to a potential executive order, the White House is planning a summit with technology companies on Friday aimed at combating extremism online. Now, this comes after the president discussed the dangers on the Internet during an address following last weekend's shootings in El Paso and Dayton. The El Paso suspect had been linked to an online manifesto that expressed hatred toward Hispanic immigrants. The other shooter expressed hatred toward virtually everybody, the church. Um, both political parties uh, self-identified as a socialist supporter of uh, some of the presidential uh, candidates and AOC. So it's a mess all the way around. Well, no one likes serving in the minority and suburbs are getting dicier for Republicans. The question was asked by John McCormick in National Review. Why are so many House Republicans retiring? Well, on Monday, Representative Kenny Marchant, he became the 12th House Republican and the fourth GOP member from Texas to announce that he will not seek reelection in 2020. Well, what explains the House GOP exodus in general and uh, the Texas in particular? Well, there are a few different factors. First, being in the minority simply isn't as interesting or fun as being in the majority in the House. Plenty of Republicans saw the writing on the wall in 2018 when 39 House GOP incumbents, including Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, declined to seek reelection. Some are learning that lesson now. So 39 last time, and you've got a number of them this time as well. Well, it would be unusual if Republicans weren't experiencing a higher number of retirements, says David Wasserman. He analyzes House races at the Cook Political Report. Uh, That's what happens when you lose the majority. That's what happened in 2008, which is one reason Democrats had a banner year in House races twice in a row. Wasserman notes that 2020 GOP retirements are on pace to match or exceed 2008. A second factor contributing to the GOP retirements is that the Trump presidency has turned safe Republican suburban districts into battlegrounds. For example, Kenny Merchant, who just announced on Monday he won't seek reelection, the margin of victory in his suburban Dallas district was 25 points in 2012, 33 points in 2014, 17 points in 2016, and down to three points in 2018. Texas Congressman Pete Olson, who also announced his retirement, won his suburban Houston district by 32 points in 2012, 35 points in 2014, 19 in 2016, and five points in 2018. Those are trend lines that no incumbent wants to see. And if Trump doesn't take Texas, he pretty much won't take the presidency. Well, the suburbs are diversifying. They're moderating so rapidly that many of the district Republicans drew back in 2011 are no longer reliable, says Wasserman. In 2018, Democrats ousted two Texas Republicans in Houston and Dallas. Historically, the cities have been bright blue and surrounded by bright red donuts of Republican suburban voters. So one Texas senator, Ted Cruz, told the Washington Post last week, what happened in 2018 is that those bright red donuts went purple, not blue, but purple. We've got to do a more effective job, he says, of carrying the message to the suburbs. So Republicans have their work cut out for them there. The president's reelection campaign needs to take Texas seriously. Cruz went on to say uh, who won reelection by just 2.6 points in 2018. He added that it is by no means a given that Trump will carry the state in 2020. Well, the GOP's suburban problem isn't limited to Texas. Retiring Georgia Congressman Rob Woodall, he won reelection in his district northeast of Atlanta by 21 to 31 percent points in 2012 to 2016. But he won re-election by just two-tenths of a percentage point in 2018, 
When a blue wave swept over the House GOP in 2018, Republicans lost districts that include suburban areas in states as red as Kansas, Utah, and South Carolina. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and currency. We were talking about why so many House Republicans are retiring. A third factor, according to Mr. Wasserman, that's contributing to these retirements is the disconnect between the president's worldview and that of some in the Republican caucus. It's the best explanation for the retirement of Texas Republican Will Hurd, for example. He was a former CIA operative, a lone black Republican in the House who won narrow victories in 2014, 2016, 2018. Many thought uh, that he, at age 41, could be the future of the party. But Hurd said in a statement last week that he has decided to pursue opportunities outside the halls of Congress to solve problems at the nexus between technology and national security without saying what exactly he plans to do. He's disagreed with the president on the border wall, on free trade, foreign policy, and he has some... One of just four House Republicans who voted in July to condemn the president's tweets telling progressive Democrats, uh, Democratic uh, congresswomen to go back to the countries from which they had come. He since clarified that. But uh, nonetheless, um, uh, he fixed it uh, again and said that he wanted them to come back and then show him how it should be done. But Martha Roby, an articulate and promising 43-year-old member of the Alabama caucus, also announced her retirement this summer. In 2016, she said she couldn't vote for Trump after the Access Hollywood tape became public, but she supported the Trump presidency enough to win the president's endorsement in 2018. Another possible factor that's nudging members, and again, we're talking about Republicans who are standing down from their place in the House, is that members of Congress haven't gotten a pay raise in a decade. On one hand, members' uh, $174,000 salary is three times the national median salary. On the other hand, members are expected to maintain two residences while making a salary well below what they could while, uh, well, presumably, uh, would likely make outside government. Well, at this uh, populist moment, it's not clear when the next raise in uh, members' salary will come. A deal to raise congressional salaries by 2.6% collapsed in June. Well, some of the retirees are stepping down for reasons that have little to do with the weakness of the House GOP or politics in general. A couple are seeking higher office, such as Alabama Bradley Byrne, He's running for the Senate. Montana's Greg uh, Gianfort, who's running for governor, and a couple of retirees, Rob Bishop of Utah, Mike Conaway of Texas, uh, come from safe districts but are losing their status as committee ranking members owning to the uh, GOP's self-imposed term limits. Any way you look at it, 12 retirements so far, and it's still fairly early, is bad news for the House GOP. There's still only seven months into the new Congress, and several more representatives will probably announce their retirement in the coming months. For all the talk about voters' anger in Washington, incumbents are still much more likely to win their elections than are candidates running for open seats. Well, this summer, the GOP's slim odds of winning back the 19 seats necessary to take back the House have become even slimmer with these uh, retirements that are growing. And lawmakers are asking for the reports of AmeriCorps' potential misuse of taxpayer money related to abortion services and referral, as well as building renovations 
A letter from ranking members of the House Oversight Committee reveals Republican Representative Jim Jordan, I should say, of Ohio and Mark Meadows of North Carolina. They're requesting the release of documents from the Corporation for National Community Service Office of the Inspector General concerning the potential misuse of taxpayer money by AmeriCorps. Well, the lawmakers are also requesting the release of documents on potential misuse of taxpayer money to renovate a Baltimore campus building. The deadline they issued is August the 20th, 5 p.m., uh, says uh, Deborah Jeffrey, Inspector General for CNCS. We always appreciate congressional interest in our work and look forward to responding about our finding uh, to date. Now, the um, Inspector General has oversight within an organization to determine whether or not they're living up to their charter or if there are abuses. She went on to say, we've become aware of the Corporation for National and Community Service, or CNCS. Uh, Office of the Inspector General has not issued final reports for two of its investigations into the misuse of federal resource, the letter read. We respectively ask that you produce some draft reports and case files for these two investigations. Well, the letter then makes two inquiries into whether AmeriCorps participation in abortion services, as well as details about the relocation and subsequent renovation of its National Civilian Community Corps Atlantic Region campus um, uh, from Perry Point, Maryland to Baltimore. Uh, First, we understand that the organization has prepared a draft report evaluating whether the members participated in abortion services or referrals, which is prohibited by federal law. Then Senator Orrin Hatch and Senator uh, Mike Enzi asked the same organization to perform uh, an evaluation. Well, they apparently found that CNS broke federal contracting rules in leasing the Sacred Heart of Mary School and the uh, they wasted taxpayer dollars in renovating that facility. Uh, the purpose of AmeriCorps' regional campus building is to provide a place for its 18 to 24-year-old volunteers to complete training before beginning a 10-month community service program. Republicans contend that these relocation efforts violated federal contracting rules, wasted taxpayer dollars. The same source, familiar with the Inspector General's report, told um, uh, the uh, Daily Caller, Uh, News Foundation of that second inquiry. Well, they conclude in the letter, um, this is Jordan and Meadows, members of uh, of the House, uh, by asking the CNCS office of the inspector general to provide information to better understand the results of uh, the investigation. A response uh, will be added uh, with the deadline coming up at the end of this month. Well, really next week, the 20th of August, 5 p.m., Again, seeking documentations on the use of taxpayer funds for abortion services and a renovation that apparently fell outside of uh, what they are expected to do. Well, churches in the El Paso, Texas area are giving prayers, they're counseling, they're giving blood to help the victims of the recent mass shooting that so far resulted in 22 deaths. Police have started the uh, have stated rather that the suspect posted a manifesto online before the shooting, which warned of an attack in response to what is called the Hispanic invasion of Texas. On the same weekend, nine people were killed and 27 uh, were injured in Dayton, Ohio, when a 24-year-old opened fire. He killed uh, was killed rather by police less than a minute after he began that rampage, but managed still to... Um, to kill nine people. And although social media po- uh, posts in which he expressed uh, liberal views have become widely known, police say they don't yet to have a determination of a specific motive for the mass shooting, but some have noted, and there was an extensive um, article earlier in the day, that he had a reported obsession with violence 
uh, and the occult. The Christian Post interviewed uh, local El Paso pastors to learn about what their churches are doing in response to the shooting, uh, what ties they have to the victims, and what they believe churches across the country need to do in response to the apparent rise of mass uh, shootings. And the first response was, love will bind and hold us together. J.C. Rico, who's the lead pastor of Emmanuel Church in El Paso, said that his congregation is providing licensed counseling at no cost to anyone affected by the tragedy who needs them. It will be a long-term process where we'll have Christian licensed counselors getting with those impacted in the meaningless uh, violence. There are some that uh, were not injured, but were at the location and have asked for counseling as well. Um, They now feel uh, responsible for sending um, uh, help where it's needed. One example cited by the pastor was a young man with their church who needed counseling as he worked at a Walmart and had encouraged some people to show up for an event on the day of the shooting. He now feels responsible for sending young girls soccer teams, the Fusion, to Walmart for the fundraiser. The two male coaches uh, were shot and are still in the hospital. He needs counseling as well. And it goes on from there. Love will bind and hold us together, they say. There's no greater love than uh, the one, uh, the kind of love our Father in Heaven gives us. And that's what we're extending to our neighbors. Pray for the churches that they will effectively minister in their community of El Paso. Up next, we're going to talk with John Carlo Canaparo, legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, on California's efforts to get the president's tax returns. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, four voters in California, along with the Judicial Watch, have filed a federal lawsuit against the left-wing state, alleging that its new law that's aimed at strong-arming the president to releasing his income tax returns is patently unconstitutional. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom signed the law known as the Presidential Tax Transparency and Accountability Act last week, Its uh, provisions would require that the president and other presidential primary candidates file their income tax returns for the most recent five years to the California Secretary of State by the 26th of November or be excluded from the March uh, 3rd, 2020 presidential primary ballot. The law doesn't apply to the general election, so Trump uh, would still appear on the November 2020 California presidential ballot if he secured the National Republican Party nomination. Uh, Independents wouldn't uh, necessarily have any impact on them since they're not uh, part of that face-off in California. By the way, the, um, the measure was rejected by former California Governor Jerry Brown. He voted uh, against a, a similar or rather vetoed a similar version of the law last year. And he noted at that time that it may not be constitutional and sets a slippery slope precedent that could lead the state to demand all kinds of documents from candidates. The measure did sail through the state's Democratic-led legislature however, and was signed by current Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. Well, here to talk about all of this is John Carlo Canaparo uh, to uh, put this into perspective. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let's talk about, first of all, what the uh, California law uh, requires and uh, what the primary objections are to these four voters from California, an independent, a Democrat, and a couple of Republicans. Sure. Your, your summary of it was spot on. Um, what the bill requires is that any candidate disclose five years of tax returns 98 days before the primary election. Otherwise, what happens is the secretary of the state of California will, cannot print that person's name on the ballot. So the argument against it, it well, the argument for it um, in the governor's 
words, is to help people make a more informed decision by providing voters with an essential essential information about conflicts of interest, business dealings, financial status, et cetera, et cetera. The argument against it is fundamentally a constitutional one, and I think it has pretty strong legs. If you start with Article 2 of the Constitution, which is where the executive branch is described, uh, it says there's what's called the Qualifications Clause, and it sets out a variety of qualifications for the president, 35 years old, natural-born citizen, a resident within the United States for 14 years. And the Supreme Court has ter- interpreted that Qualifications Clause to be exclusive and said, look, the states can't impose other qualifications on um, national offices. The reason being is that you're violating the associational rights of Americans to choose uh, who they want to represent them, and you violate the First Amendment rights of of those people when they form into political parties to choose who their candidates should be. So uh, what the Supreme Court has said states can do is limit or impose restrictions on the process of elections. So um, things like how ballots are collected, the timing, that sort of thing, which is why you see Gavin Newsom uh, describing this bill as a uh, as a limitation on whose name gets printed on the ballot. That's a very strategic decision mm-hmm. on his part because he feels he, he his argument is that if we're just describing who's on the ballot, we're not actually imposing any requirements on the candidates. So that is the sixty second version. Yeah. In fact, when he signed the uh, the law last week, uh, he released a statement from three lawyers that included the dean of the University of California, Berkeley Law School, saying the law is constitutional. And he, he offered some examples uh, limiting presidents to two terms after President Roosevelt was elected to four terms, passing anti-nepotism laws after President John F. Kennedy appointed his brother attorney general. So, again, trying to put it in a category that would pass muster in the court. Right. So the first, the first thing, which is, I find very interesting, um, the, the, I believe the the dean he's quoting is is Erwin Chemerinsky, who's a, a famous legal scholar and really a brilliant man. But I feel I fear that he's sort of um, become swept up in, in partisan politics mm-hmm. and let his better legal judgment slip away. In terms of the term limits um, argument. Uh, you know, if memory serves, it's a constitutional amendment, was it not? It's there's certainly not a requirement imposed by any state, uh, and that's the key here. That one state is trying to determine the qualifications that will govern the president of 50 states. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I noted in one um, analysis of all of this, they pointed out that citizens have had to pay federal income taxes since 1913, but it wasn't until 1973 when a U.S. president made his personal tax returns public. That was Republican uh, Richard Nixon who released his tax returns publicly. He was being audited by the IRS, and many, but not all, have followed suit. And former California Governor Jerry Brown didn't release his tax returns. Of of course, he wasn't uh, elected president, but he didn't release them, his returns, when he ran for president in 1992. Um, 20% of those who have run since 1976 have refused to produce their their tax returns. So this isn't altogether unique that President Trump has elected not to release his? Right, right. And the reason that that this has become an issue is largely because it's Democrats see it as a weapon in mm-hmm. ongoing fight against the president. Um, few presidents have been as wealthy and have have had as extensive business 
dealings with them. And as we saw with the Russian collusion narrative, there's the uh, the uh, the narrative is the best word I can use for it that uh, the president has shady business dealings with Russia, and you know those were debunked, but uh, hope lives on. Yeah, and on and on, and so do the speculation right. and investigation and everything that's gone. Um, uh, along with it. Now, this law would only apply to party-affiliated candidates, so independents, who I understand are not part of the uh, this uh, uh, election, would not be uh, impacted by it. So the suit uh, alleges that it violates the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause and a federal Equal Protection Statute. Um, does that uh, hold water as well for those who are challenging California's requirement? Now, that's a more interesting argument and not one that I've looked into. Um, the, I think the stronger or strongest argument besides the, the text of the, of the qualifications clause itself is actually a First Amendment argument, uh, the idea being that the parties are associations of people expressing their First Amendment right to mm-hmm. choose who they want to represent them, which brings us back to uh, the governor's proffered rationale, which is that it provides the voters with essential information so they can make an informed choice. Well, can the voters not make the informed choice about whether or not they care uh, that the president has or has not released his uh, tax returns? That's that's a perfectly fair judgment for them to make, and they get to express that through their political associations. Well, in fact, Judicial Watch also raises uh, the 14th Amendment and the freedom of voters to associate with the candidate, uh, and that being undermined by this law as well. What happens next uh, since this challenge has been Uh, issued uh, and the election is approaching, Uh, I mean, we've got a bit of time, but what happens next in determining whether or not California's law will stand? What will happen next is the plaintiffs in the case, those are the people filing the lawsuits, will move most likely for what's called a preliminary injunction. And the, the federal court hearing the case will decide on an expedited basis whether they are likely to win. And if they're likely to win, he'll, the judge will enjoin the law and block it. And then there will be emergency appeals. This could be one of those cases like Bush v. Gore that skips straight ahead to the Supreme Court, and we'll see. But I, I have no doubt that the case will be resolved uh, in one way or another before uh, the election. Yeah, it seems absolutely time. essential. Uh, John Carlo, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, John Carlo Canaparo is a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation on California's efforts to force the president to release his tax returns, five years of them. And in fact, the law also requires that within five days of receipt of the candidate's tax returns, the secretary of state, again in the state of California, shall make redacted versions of the tax returns available to the public on the secretary of state's Internet website, the law states. Now, it's not just the state of California that wants the president's tax returns. As my guest, uh, John Carlo, uh, suggested, uh, the Democrat Party wants to use this as a bludgeon, and certainly that information would be uh, used far beyond uh, the state of California and the Secretary of State's website. But this is what uh, what they're uh, calling for and what the law signed in, uh, into law by the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, would require. Again, that challenge will continue to follow as it makes its way to the courts and ultimately, as uh, our guest suggested, and I believe, to the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we are officially in the start of the Atlantic 
hurricane season, and forecasters are advising that conditions have changed to allow for above-normal activity. That's the phrase they're choosing as the peak months of the season have arrived. Well, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said in its mid-season outlook that an El Nino weather pattern in the Pacific Ocean has ended, and that leads to neutral conditions that are more favorable to tropical activity in the Atlantic Ocean. El Nino typically suppresses Atlantic hurricane activity, but now that it's gone, we could see a busier season ahead. That's according to Jerry Bell. He's the lead seasonal her- hurricane forecaster for NOAA Climate Change Prediction Center. Well, this uh, combined with the more uh, condu- conducive conditions uh, associated with the ongoing high activity era for Atlantic hurricanes that began in 1995, that increases the likelihood of above normal activity this this year. Well, forecasters are now calling for 10 to 17 named storms with winds 39 miles per hour or higher, of which five to nine could strengthen into hurricanes. Of those storms, there are going to be two or four major hurricanes, which are classified as category three, four or five with winds of 111 miles per hour or higher. Well, forecasters this year have also increased the likelihood of an above-normal Atlantic hurricane season to 45%. That's up from 30% from the preseason outlook that was issued back in May. The likelihood of near-normal activity is now at 35% and the chance of below-normal at 20%. An average hurricane season produces about 12 named storms, of which six become hurricanes, including three major hurricanes, according to NOAA. The peak months for the season are August through October, and of course, they're now underway. Forecasters also stress that NOAA outlook is for overall seasonal activity and not a landfall forecast. So when you're talking about these storms, we're not talking necessarily about storms that make their way onto land. Landfalls are largely determined by short-term weather patterns, which are only predictable within about a week of a storm potentially reaching a coastline, according to NOAA. Well, those living in the impact zones along the coast and inland are warned to be prepared for whatever may come this hurricane season, which I suppose is probably standing advice for that region of the country. Today's update outlook is a reminder to be prepared. That's what the acting FEMA administrator Pete Gaynor said in a statement. We urge everyone to learn more about hurricane hazards and prepare now ahead of time so that if state and local authorities announce evacuations in advance of a storm, you and your family will have planned where to go and what to do to stay safe. So far, two named storms have formed this year, Andrea and Barry. Well, there's a list uh, for the 2019 Atlantic hurricane season, and they are Chantal, Dorian, Aaron, Fernand, Gabriel, Humberto, Imelda, Jerry, Karen, Lorenzo, Melissa, Nestor, Olga, Pablo, Rebecca, Sebastian, Tanya, Van, and Wendy. Wendy. I mean, that seems a bit obvious. I don't know why Georgine isn't on that list, but subtropical storm Andrea formed on the 21st of May and quickly fizzled a day later over the Atlantic. Again, didn't make landfall southwest of Bermuda. Hurricane Barry, the second storm, made landfall in Louisiana the 13th of July. That was a Category 1 uh, storm. The 2019 Atlantic hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th, and this year includes the names I've mentioned. That doesn't include James... Clark or Georgine rats. I would love to just once hear my name emblazoned over some destructive system. I don't want mine to make landfall just, you know, to create a little havoc out in, out at sea. 
Well, tomorrow I'm taking the day off, so I'm looking forward to hanging out at home with Mom and uh, Dan. So I won't be here. You'll hear some of the best of the Georgine Rice Show, which James is feverishly compiling even as we speak. I also want to remind you that next weekend is a big weekend here for all of the affiliated stations uh, for the Salem uh, media collaboration, if you will. We've got uh, the Gospel Sing Live. That's coming to the Salem Waterfront uh, next Friday night, 7.30. It's going to be a great, great time. And if you haven't yet purchased your tickets or if you weren't uh, uh, fortunate enough to win a ticket, you can still go to kpdq.com and purchase your tickets. Again, you can bring your own seating or you can arrange to take advantage of seating that will be available. But we're going to have a great time. Hope to see many of you and look forward to... Uh, to greeting you at the Salem waterfront. That will, of course, be followed the next day by Fish Fest. And uh, our sister station, uh, 1041 The Fish, will be holding the music festival. So it's going to be a great weekend of uh, fun and great music, and hope to see many of you there for that. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, and for that matter, tomorrow's program, along with Clark Hilton, uh, our engineer. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We really appreciate your hanging out with us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.